What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Wall Street hopes to build on momentum and move higher. Remember when I said we need a reality check? Either the stock market needs a reality check or the, or the reporting needs a reality check. While shrugging off new coronavirus case numbers across the U.S., we'll get into those numbers with former FDA chief Dr. Scott Gottlieb. This still has a long way to go. We are, at, for all intents and purposes, we are now in the second wave. And Allergan's former CEO on walking the fine line between risks of COVID spread and risks of a closed economy. There's a, a, a saying, right? The presence of disease kills people, but the absence of livelihood also kills people. Those stories plus Warren Buffett's New Deal and Kanye 2020. It's Monday, July 6th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And guys, the best I can figure out is futures are up, I don't know, because it's Monday. Starting this Monday podcast with the markets. After the three-day holiday weekend for the 4th of July, the U.S. stock markets are kicking things off with a bang and seem poised for a surge in the first week of 2020's third quarter. What was that last week? Four, a four-day yeah, week? I'm trying to explain this. I, I could make up. I, I could think, make up a bunch of reasons, but, but because I don't we're have a good because we're reopening, that I can tell you. Well, we're reopening, yeah. and, and but the last week was in the face of, of coronavirus news every day, spiking that, coronavirus that everyone cases. Was talking and, about. And every same, day, same thing over the weekend. Right, same thing yeah, over the weekend. Said, same thing over the weekend. You saw new records that were hit in some of these states where they were talking about more than ten thousand cases a day that were coming in, and yet here you are watching the markets this morning, saying, right. "Yeah, okay." It, it could all end badly, I guess, but uh, at this point. Um, I mean, I, I, this is really serious when you got this many people, obviously, that, that, that have passed away uh, from the disease. But I, I remember when I said at one point, I said, look, we, we need a reality check. Either the stock market needs a reality check or the, or the reporting needs a, a reality check on what's really happening. I think that overall, maybe we're learning that, you know, that we need to live with it until we get the vaccine and until we get some therapeutics. And we have gotten some good news on therapeutics. We have gotten some good news on the prospects for a vaccine. We, I've seen some things. We're going to talk to Scott Gottlieb in a second about you don't need 100 percent immunity to have herd immunity. You need a you know, I don't know what you actually need, but I, I thought it was better than 60 percent or something better. 60 mid better than yeah. 65 percent. You can imagine like even if you had 30 or 40 percent, it, it, that lowers the possibility no. you have that number of one where you get where you have a one where every every person has one gives it to somebody else. If you're, you know, well, if so you're everybody at least already in theory would have it and to herd immunity, people, it means everybody's gotten it. It's burned right. its way through the herd. Right. Andrew, I'm just trying to explain why the market's right. It, you know, it, I know it's dire. It's still really right. bad and things are really scary. But we're just trying to figure out why we keep setting new highs. No, I know. I just think that I, I just don't think I think that the, the oh. only distinction I was going to make is. The headlines around coronavirus, I don't think are hysterical or, and, and not not funny hysterical, but overzealous because I think there are, there, there are tens of thousands of people in the hospital. That's one. But that that's one story. There's another story, which is the market story, which is that they're shrugging this off, saying 
12 months out from now, maybe 18 months out from now. I think, by the way, people are going to are, are either are giving it a lot more time even in their own heads, because obviously it's unclear that we're all going to be back in business this fall. I think everybody doesn't think that anymore. But for some reason, we're still powering through. I just think that the idea that, that one headline is wrong and the other headline is wrong, I don't even think it's true. I think it actually, oddly enough, you can have headlines around coronavirus and the health implications of that and headlines around the markets. And while they don't seem to make sense in front of you, that, that, that's more of the explanation. And an update now on the pandemic. 18 states reported new highs in the seven-day average of daily cases over the weekend. In Texas, Saturday's total of 8,200 new cases was the highest since the pandemic began. Hospitals in at least two Texas counties are now at full capacity. Houston's mayor says the city's hospitals are on track to be overwhelmed in about two weeks if, if cases continue to grow at the same rate. The number of tests that are positive is now at about 13 percent in Texas, nearly 25 percent in the city of Houston. Meantime, Florida reported more than 11,000 new cases on Saturday and about 10,000 on Sunday. The number of tests that were positive was 14 percent. Florida's governor, though, has said he won't reclose businesses, but local governments are taking stricter measures. The mayor of Miami-Dade has imposed an overnight curfew and will close some businesses that reopened in June. Andrew. Dr. Scott Gottlieb uh, out with a warning saying the path to a vaccine can be long and complex in a New Wall Street Journal op-ed. He's calling for drug companies to ramp up production of drugs that mimic an immune response called uh, monoclonal uh, antibodies. And uh, Dr. Gottlieb joins us. He's, of course, a former FDA commissioner, uh, CNBC contributor, serves on the boards of Illumina and Pfizer. Uh, good morning to you. Uh, a lot to talk about. Given, let's just go actually at some of the numbers over the weekend because you heard the conversation that Joe and Becky and I were just having uh, about where the markets are, about a lot of the headlines. You know, there's a criticism, I will say, uh, at the media by some people who think that this is panic, what they call panic porn. Uh, when 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 you see these these headlines, my my in my view, these are uh, obviously factual headlines that people are trying to report. Uh, but there's a whole other view that that this is overdoing it. What do you think of that? Well, look, I, th- I think there's people who cling to what I would call a false narrative that somehow this isn't this is overblown. COVID isn't a big deal. Um, you know, somehow there's a truth that evaded China and Japan and South Korea and all these countries that, you know, really took this seriously, crushed their virus. I think the reality is we are showing improvements against the disease. Um, we are preserving more life. We're treating people better. But this is still a very deadly pathogen, and it's still going to claim a lot of lives. Even if we cut the case fatality rate in half, which is possible with some of the treatments and the innovations and care that we've introduced in the last couple of months, if we infect twice as many people, we're right back where we started from. And so this is still something we need to take very seriously and control. And right now, the epidemics are largely out of control in the South. There's some private modeling floating around that said that the the states in the South, Texas, Arizona, Florida, could peak sometime in the next three weeks. I think that's optimistic. People are looking at Google mobility data, seeing that people are reducing their mobility, recognizing that a lot of the susceptibles are going to get infected or have already been infected. Probably the um, seropositivity, the rate of infection in these states is probably pretty high right now. But this still has a long way to go. Um, We are, for all intents and purposes, we are now in the second wave. It's hard to say this isn't the second wave. We're now above, almost above the peak number of infections that we were at during the height of the epidemic in New York, the national epidemic at that time. So we're going to be contending with this for a long time at this point. But but to the point about the economy and reopening and schools reopening, 
Do you believe that now that we're in this second wave, it's going to change the, the, the path, if you will, of the economy? It's going to change the path of reopening? I think it's going to change consumer behavior, and that that change in behavior is also what's going to ultimately be a backstop against the epidemic. We're not going to shut down. The people don't want it. The politicians don't want it. But people who are susceptible and vulnerable are withdrawing and protecting themselves, doing a better job of that. That's not going to persist as long if this infection continues to spread. But we are seeing that happen. I don't think that there's going to be sort of deliberate decisions to shut down. As far as schools are concerned, I think it's going to be very hard for uh, states that have epidemics right now to reopen their schools in the fall, tragically, because those decisions are made locally. Even if the governor sets out to open schools, local boards aren't going to want to open schools against the backdrop of an epidemic. The The governor can override the local school board districts in many states, but they're not going to want to do that because what you'll have is a situation where Wealthier districts will have the resources to do that, to not adhere to um, state mandates. But districts that don't have as much money won't. And I think that kind of a divide isn't something that's going to be tolerable. So I think ultimately discretion is going to be given to local school boards to make those decisions. And in localities where you see epidemic spread, people are going to be uncomfortable about sending kids to school. You're not going to want to put them at risk. Even if, even if you adhere to all these arguments that kids are less vulnerable and they're not as efficient in spreading the virus and they don't get as sick, um, they are vulnerable. They do get the virus, maybe on a less prevalent basis. They do get sick, again, on a less prevalent basis, not as commonly. Um, and so parents are going to be reluctant to open schools and risk epidemics in the schools as long as this is spreading in, a, in an epidemic fashion in some of these states. Right. Scott, the other question I wanted to ask you about was this Wall Street Journal piece. And there were two, two components of it. One was what I thought was an in, in, implied or implication that perhaps the vaccine may take longer than the market, if you will, is expecting. And I think the market is expecting by the end of the year that there's a vaccine, maybe not at scale, but uh, too, uh, available to a lot of people. And what the, the drugs that you think need to get made and how quickly they can or cannot get up and running. Well, the implication here is that the drug remdesivir, which is a direct acting antiviral from Gilead, uh, looks effective. We'll, we'll be turning over more data cards, cards on that. But the reality is we don't have enough of that drug if this epidemic worsens. And if data ultimately demonstrates that the drug is effective in earlier settings of disease. Right now, it's really being used in hospitalized patients um, who, for example, require oxygen, who are pretty sick. If we demonstrate that using it early in the course of the disease, maybe even on an outpatient basis for patients who are at high risk of a bad outcome, we don't have enough drug for that. And we should have made decisions two, three months ago to try to ramp up the supply in different ways. What I'm arguing is we shouldn't make the same mistake with the antibody drugs because that might be all we really have between now and the end of the year. The vaccine, I'm still optimistic we'll get a vaccine, but I still believe it's an early 2021 event in an optimistic scenario that we're going to have a vaccine available for widespread inoculation of the population. Even if it becomes available for selective use in this fall for certain high-risk groups under an emergency use authorization, that's unlikely to really change the complexion of the epidemic, if you will. It's not going to be enough of an intervention. So a vaccine that can intervene to actually end the epidemic probably is a 2021 event. At that point, we're going to have so much infection that's coursed its way through the population um, that this may have naturally started to decline on its own. We might have started to approach herd immunity. The doubling time right now is about 30 days, a little bit more than that. Um, And so if we're doubling the number of infections every 35 days, by the time you get to the late fall, probably early winter, you probably have 30 percent of the population that's already had this. It must be around 7 percent right now. 
Hey, Dr. Gottlieb, there was a story in Politico over the weekend that said uh, even six months into this coronavirus pandemic, we still have a problem in the United States with getting our arms around testing. And that's because uh, several reasons. They said there's still issues in the supply chain, things like the reagents uh, that are not readily available and the pipettes that you talked about so long ago with us. I think you told us about that three, three, three and a half months ago. Um, but then also just as we're reopening, there's much more demand as, as companies want to make sure that they can check all of their workers pretty routinely and other issues like that. It, how, how big of an issue do you think coronavirus testing is at this point, and, and will we get to a point where it's readily available? Well, it's a bigger problem than we thought it would be at this point. You're right, the pipette tips, the swabs, all the low-commodity products are back in shortage. I think what's surprising is how quickly the supply chain got pressed in states like Georgia and Florida and, and our inability to move supplies into those states. Those states right now don't have enough testing. There's delays of three to five days when you talk to the doctors on the ground. There's long lines, long waits to get testing. And so we really still don't have a national system we can distribute these products nationally. Certain states have a lot of testing. You look at New York, Massachusetts. They're doing a lot of testing right now. Florida and Texas, Arizona clearly don't, California as well, and Georgia will soon be pressed too, clearly don't have enough testing. And so we don't have a national plan. We don't have a national strategy. We don't have a national pool of resources and, and swing capacity that we can move around when we have these epidemics. And so states start to get pressed very quickly. In terms of when we'll have more supply in the market, we're going to see some major approvals of new products, I think, pretty soon. Um, that are going to be more point-of-care diagnostics. That's going to provide a lot of capacity into the market. New systems that have control over their own supply chain end-to-end, -end, so they're going to bring a tr tremendous amount of new capacity into the market. So by September, it's going to look better, but I'm still surprised. I thought we'd be in a better place now. I'm still surprised that when you have an epidemic in a state, you don't have the ability to bring to marshal resources and focus them into that state. Clearly, that's, that's not happening. Clearly, we don't have that still. So, Scott, we, with the testing, and we, we have no idea, really, what, what the total number is, are you still at a factor of 10 for, for what we really should be talking about here? When, when we see 5,000 or 10,000 cases in a state uh, on a given day, is it really 50,000 or 100,000, 100,000, 200,000? The 2.8 million that you see at the bottom of the screen right now, Total U.S. COVID cases, is it 28 million or is it two? What do you really think? So this is the way I would think about it. At the peak of the New York epidemic, we were probably diagnosing one in 20. So we peaked at 34,000 cases on one day. That was probably around 700,000 cases. Now, if you look at the seroprevalence studies, CDC said we're diagnosing one in 10 now. We're probably more like one in 12 now because these states are getting pressed and we're falling behind. And if you look at the seroprevalence studies, they suggest we're diagnosing one in 12, one in 12 cases and so we're going to hit 60,000 cases this week for certain. And so we're back to 700,000 infections a day. I would say that there's about 700,000 infections a day occurring. Now, okay. 20 to 40 percent of them are asymptomatic. But that's probably what we should be thinking about. We should multiply right. it by 12. So when we, you know, report these numbers that, oh, my God, it's a record of 6,000 cases, you're really talking about at least 10 or 12 times that is what the real number is. So if you're, if you're horrified And that's that, why a large okay. percentage... Well, then we right, and yeah. that's why a large percentage of the population has already had this. Right. Okay. All right. Well, that's all. Maybe okay. you know. Maybe we're one day closer, Scott. Uh, that's, that's what hope springs eternal, right? We could see it start to peak. If you look at some of the private modeling, we could see a peak in some of these southern states this month. I think it's going to be an extended okay. plateau, though. Unfortunately. All right. Thanks, Scott. Always good to see you. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. 
Some corporate news that broke over the weekend. Just yesterday, this announcement came out that Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway is making a big move in the energy sector. It's spending $4 billion to buy Dominion's natural gas transmission and storage assets. When you include the assumption of debt in this deal, it totals almost $10 billion. It's $5.7 billion in, in debt that they're assuming, so $9.7 billion with all of that. This does mark the first major purchase from Berkshire Hathaway since the coronavirus pandemic and then the subsequent market collapse back in, in March. Amid that deal, Dominion Energy announcing that it's pulling the plug on its Atlantic Coast Pipeline project with Duke Energy, and that's a huge deal in itself. That was an $8 billion project that's been facing increasing regulatory scrutiny and lots of delays that have boosted projected cost and raised doubts about its economic feasibility. In fact, some people say good luck ever trying to build a pipeline in this country again. This move comes less than a month after the U.S. Supreme Court approved a critical permit for the pipeline, but there were other laws that were passed, including one in Virginia just a few months ago, that would have made it very difficult for Dominion to be able to raise rates to go ahead and, and pay for for uh, the, the the plant that they'd be building and the pipeline that they'd be building on some of those issues. So uh, some people say you're not going to be able to build pipelines in this country anymore. Um, and, and again, this was years of delays. They've been building that since all the way back to 2014. Um, lots of moving parts here. It says a lot about Dominion wanting to be more of a, just a regulata regulated utility. Um, it gets rid of a lot of its leveraged assets. In fact, the assets that it was selling to Berkshire Hathaway Energy were leveraged at about 60 percent. And again, it's a big deal because Berkshire Hathaway had said that it was very interested in spending money. Remember, back in May, we learned that the company had built its cash hoard all the way up to a record $137 billion. At that point, Buffett said that they didn't see anything that was really opportunistic, anything that they really liked. Um, it was not like 2008 and 2009 because the Federal Reserve had stepped in. He said he thought the Fed had done the right thing, but as a result, it had calmed the markets and made sure that uh, companies could get access to any sort of capital they needed through the public markets. And and so there weren't really opportunities for Berkshire to step in and do some of the deals like they'd done back in 2000 and 2008 with Goldman Sachs and GE and others. We have not done anything because uh, we don't see anything that attractive to do. Now, that could change, you know, very quickly or it may not change. Uh, but in 2008 and 9, the truth is we weren't buying those things to make a statement to the world. They may have made a statement to the world to some extent, and I'm glad that they did if they did. But, but, but we made them because... They seemed intelligent things to do. I was thinking about this deal as I mm -hmm. saw you, you, you reporting on it yesterday on CNBC.com. And I was thinking to myself, yeah. clearly, given that Dominion um, won this Supreme Court lawsuit around this Atlantic pipeline and yet still decided to sell, how much of that is a bet on politics in the future in terms of perhaps Democrats winning in, in the fall because clearly they could they they won in one place uh, at the Supreme Court level and possibly could have gone ahead, but clearly think it's challenged. And what does it say about Warren Buffett's yeah. view? I don't know if it says something about politics or just his view that these assets are valuable unto themselves without having to expand and do more. Yeah, I would say probably the latter. I, I, I think if you look at this, this is an infrastructure play for Berkshire Hathaway. Um, these pipes are, are incredibly important for moving natural gas through the United States. And with this deal, Berkshire's going to now have 18% of the interstate transmission of natural gas throughout the United States. That's up from 8% that it would have before this sale that comes with it. And, and I don't know that this was Dominion kind of looking at the political landscape thinking, okay, maybe there's 
going to be a Democratic president that comes in in the fall, because a lot of the problems they were having are on the state level with things. And the Virginia law that I was just talking about was one that had been introduced by a Virginia Republican. Um, so, you know, this, these these issues, the permitting processes that go through in states have a lot of issues. And I think it's been states that have raised the biggest ruckus with some of the things to go through uh, on that particular, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, too. All right. Okay. Uh, it's interesting. Very, very interesting. Next, on Squawk Pod, former pharma insider Brent Saunders of Allergan on laying foundations for a vaccine. Why can't we just have a vaccine? I said, well, why can't we just have a 90-story building on this block? And his opinions on what we should and shouldn't do while we wait. We can't just go back and, and close down society either. That has a profound impact on public health as well. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Of the handful of big drug makers racing for a COVID-19 vaccine, Regeneron Pharmaceuticals is the latest to announce a step forward in the process. This morning, during the Squawk Box live broadcast, Regeneron announced that it began late-stage clinical trials to assess the effectiveness of its coronavirus antibody cocktail. The trial is run in partnership with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and it's testing the therapy's ability to prevent infection in those who've had close exposure to a COVID patient. A few other pharma companies have also begun human trials for their COVID therapies, including Gilead, Eli Lilly, and AbbVie, which brings me to our next guest. A little more than a month ago, AbbVie acquired Allergan, the pharma company focused on medical aesthetics, and the CEO, chairman, and president of Allergan stepped away from his company in the process. That exec would be Brent Saunders, who'd previously run Bausch & Lohm. He's been a pharma industry insider for over a decade. Here's Becky on Squawk Box this morning, kicking off the conversation with Brent Saunders. Brent, it's really good to see you. How are you? Great. Nice to, to see you as well, Becky, and thanks for having me. We need your advice on this or your expert opinion on what you're hearing, because the pace of this is, is happening so rapidly. And every day, it seems like there's another company that is talking about its phase two studies, its phase three studies, some good results that they've seen in a phase one, perhaps. And honestly, it's hard to kind of keep up with it all. Um, you watch this industry very closely. You've known a lot about what's happening. What do you, where do you think we stand? Yeah, look, I think uh, it's very impressive that the biopharmaceutical industry has responded um, to the call for a vaccine in the way that they have. We have over 100 uh, uh, vaccines in development. But I think we also have to be realistic. There's some very big challenges associated with developing vaccines. Normally, this takes seven, 10 years, and we're trying to cut this down to a year or less. And so that poses a lot of risk. Uh, for example, recruitment into trials for vaccines is a big hurdle. Manufacturing scale-up is a big hurdle. Safety testing is a big hurdle. The good news is we're doing a lot of these things in parallel. But I also think that the market and perhaps a lot of people, given the rhetoric that's been out there, um, believe that a vaccine is very close. I think we're looking at the best-case scenario for a vaccine being widely available um, in 2021, likely first quarter, maybe second quarter. And so we have to plan around that. 
I, I, that doesn't surprise me. That's what I would have anticipated, first or second quarter. You think the market thinks it's going to happen fourth quarter of this year? I do, and I think there's been some rhetoric around vaccines being available this year. And I think we may have a candidate uh, finalized, but by the time we finish safety testing, scale up and distribution, that can take a few months. I was trying to explain this to a friend who's a builder uh, who said to me, well, why can't we just have a vaccine? I said, well, why can't we just have a 90-story building on this block? We need to go through, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? You have to build a foundation. You have to right. put steel. In. You have to, to build a building. You have to get permits. You have to do all sorts of surveys. Same thing with scaling up a vaccine. It requires a lot of work, and it takes a lot of time. If that's the case, if we're looking optimistically at first or second quarter of next year before one's widely available, what does life look like in the meantime here in the United States? I think there are so many questions, particularly given some of the outbreaks and flare-ups that we're seeing in the South. Uh, we had Dr. Scott Gottlieb with us earlier this morning, and he said, you, you have to realize that this is now actively the second wave. We are looking at a daily number of cases uh, that's, that's about to surpass the, the peak that we had seen back in March. And, and, and he's pretty actively concerned about that. How, how would you suggest uh, we handle things from here? Yeah, look, I think we have to have a real open discussion around the trade-offs of a lockdown society versus an open society and, and something in between. And I think the reality is, look, uh, there's a, a, a saying, right, the presence of disease kills people, but the absence of livelihood also kills people. And so we have to look at, at, at how we balance these two things. The virus is going to be around for a while. The vaccine is at best several months away. We're getting better at therapeutic treatments. We're being able to bend the curve in terms of death rate. And so I think we have to look at how do we appropriately open society? How do we allow people to get back to work in a safe way? We need to wear a mask. We need to socially distance. We have to wash our hands. And we need to make sure that the healthcare system isn't over, overwhelmed by, by cases. That being said, we can't just go back and, and close down society either. That has a profound impact on public health as well. How come it's been so difficult to convince people just to wear masks then? I mean, for Texas to only on Thursday make it mandatory to wear masks, if you want to reopen the economy, if you want to get back to a place, social distancing and mask wearing are the best defenses you have in that scenario. And yet the very people who demand that the economy be opened are the ones who are most reluctant to do any of those things. Yeah, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think mask wearing is a very simple thing that we all should do universally. Um, I think it, it, uh, it has become politicized for some strange reason. It's a very simple thing to do. We should have a national policy. We should have local enforcement of, of mask wearing. And it's not just something, I think people believe wrongly that it's just something you do to protect others. You actually protect yourself the other thing I think we need to do is we need higher quality masks uh, in the United States. Um, right now, the cloth masks or some of the very simple one layer masks don't protect as well as perhaps some of the more uh, uh, durable masks. And there are better masks out there that are as at the same price as, as some of these very uh, uh, not well made masks. And so um, we need a better policy on masks. We need higher quality masks. We need masks available uh, to all and we need to enforce it. Yeah, I'd probably add testing and contact tracing to that list, too, so that you can actively see where there's an outbreak, where there's a problem, catch it quickly. And that would be something that would probably lead to more consumer confidence, too. Right. You're, you're exactly right. In fact, I, I was uh, with somebody who, who was diagnosed with COVID-19 
uh, last week. And so I went and, and was tested on Friday of last week. And I just got my results back on Saturday. So eight days um, to get my nasal swab results back. That's <laughs> that's unacceptable. That's not the way we're going to be able to slow transmission down. We need much better testing. In fact, we need rapid uh, uh, testing that's that's got a got um, a real predictability about it and uh, is real. I take it your test came back negative. <laughs> it did. It did came. Thankfully, it did come yeah. back. Negative. And my friend is doing well. So um, all, all is good there. But, okay. but eight days is way too long. Yeah, it is. Hey, Brent, thank you. I have the feeling we'll have you back to talk more about these issues. Great. Thank you. Next, Kanye 2020 and who wears short shorts? It's so you know, bad. I mean, I it can't. It works if you wear really high white socks. More Squawk Pod right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Kanye West says that he is running for president. The multi-platinum rapper announcing on Twitter this weekend that he's making good on his 2015 promise to run. Previously, West had been vocal about his support for President Trump. It's unclear if he's serious about a run. He hasn't taken any of the steps that you would actually need to take to run for president. But he also announced last week that he has a new album coming out soon. But he has already have a couple of billionaires backing him up. Elon Musk and Mark Cuban both voicing their support. Vegas, by the way, has his odds at 66 to 1. Andrew? Separately, uh, thanks, Becky. Uh, Tesla mocking short sellers. I should say Elon Musk mocking short sellers. The company has listed, quote, limited edition short shorts for sale on its website. CEO Elon Musk tweeted yesterday about their availability. Last week, Tesla's market cap passing Toyota to become the world's most valuable car company. And guys, if I remember right, um, there was a, a David Einhorn uh, mention about short shorts. And I thought he might have gone after David Einhorn, who was short this company maybe two years ago. Does that, does that ring bells with anybody? Huh. I, I where the short uh, short idea vaguely. comes from? I remember a couple of Very vaguely. Okay. I'm going I'm I'm to uh, pick it up. Glaringly bad Einhorn picks in, in recent years. I think years. you may be right, but... I'll tell you what, what gonna, uh, here, here, here's what here's the thing. There are there's no room for short shorts ever anywhere. I, they, I guess they went out of style so badly. Um, <laughs> like when I see an adult man that, that's that's running and who inadvertently is wearing an old pair, you know, shorts now come down to, to right above the knee. And that, that's what we're used to. So <laughs> it, it's so yeah. bad. I mean, I it can't works if you wear really high 
white socks all it, the way it's up to your bad knee no then one looks good even you know i've seen even my daughter cage and i was like where'd you get those she was wearing a, a shirt and it's like you look like you have no shorts on right. when you're wearing that shirt but i can't unsee um will ferrell in in what was it semi-pro that basketball movie or whatever it was and and it's just no one <laughs> looks good in short shorts so i understand elon musk is kidding around but they're not right. to actually wear there to, to make the point that, that you've so, gotten your, your, you don't have short shorts, Andrew, right? I mean, don't. Back, not, back in 2018, I've now looked it up. Uh, he did, he actually sent short shorts directly to David Einhorn, who you remember was shorting him. And David wrote back to him on Twitter and said, I want to thank Elon Musk shorts. for the shorts. He is a man of his word. Yeah. They did come with some manufacturing defects. They which did. was a. Oh, okay. <laughs> Clearly a dig at at Tesla, given that there were some problems with some of the the early cars that were coming off the line, if you remember back then. I mean, just fashion-wise, we we do not, we'd have to have a, they're like ties. You know how ties, when they look thick, they're like, they look really crazy. And then when they go, I don't think short shorts are up, but they're out now. It was the Nair commercial. Who wears short shorts? I remember that. Who wears short shorts? That's the show for today. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.